Now we will have a split sermon brought to us today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley, entitled Idolatry, Lessons from the Fathers. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful once again to see everyone. Well, as you can see, the title today is Idolatry, Lessons from Our Fathers. You know, the Bible has so much to say about idolatry. And we can look from Genesis all the way to the very end, to the end times, to the, the things to come. There's a theme in the Bible. There's a theme about human nature. You know, idols is something that, just because we live in the 21st century, doesn't exist. It isn't something that it was for back in the Bible days. People had things that were made with, with hands of men, such as wooden statues or statues of, of pagan deities, deities that weren't really even gods. They're something that is still alive today. Idolatry is not just the worship, shall I say, of something physical that we can see. Idolatry is is much deeper than that. In fact, if you think about it, worship, in, in, in one sense, is our devotion to something. Right? When we are worshiping something, we are devoting ourselves to that object. As I mentioned, the Bible has so much to say about this. And in fact, the Bible actually tells us that, look, history needs to tell us a lesson. You know, as a history teacher, that's one of the things that I always preach on to my students. Hey, history. It's something very valuable for us. We can learn so much from people that have went before us. We can learn so much from people's mistakes. So much from people's decisions, the consequences, the things that resulted from the decisions that they made. Well, in the New Testament, there's a particular group of people. A particular group of people that the Apostle Paul thought that it was a great opportunity to bring out some of the, I guess you would say, examples from our fathers. Our fathers being our ancient Israelite fathers. This church, this group of people were the church or the Christians living in the city of Corinth. They were a group of people that had so many problems as the letters of Paul to this group of people show. In fact, some of these problems was simply that these people were divided among themselves who they followed. Some of them went around saying, well, I follow Paul. Well, I follow Apollos, or I follow Peter or Cephas, as, it's, as he's called in 1 Corinthians. There's actually someone in this church, in this group of people, in this city, that was actually committing fornication with his father's wife. Now that's one side of the coin that is, I guess you would say, surprising. The other side is that the church was actually tolerating it. This is a church for Paul that had a lot of problems. And because of these problems, we have been given a lot of practical advice. A lot of practical advice about things we need to look out for in our own life. You know, Paul's dealing with a group of people that are living in a city that is, I guess you would say, absolutely saturated 
with paganism, saturated with, with idolatry, saturated with, with pagan festivals, things that are obviously contrary to the Word of God. So they were more susceptible, or they were more at risk to an extent, not to mention many of these people that were Christians here in Corinth were Gentiles, and they probably had a history of participating in such things as pagan festivals. The section in particular we're going to look at is 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. Now, this is a very popular chapter. We, we know what this chapter says. We're going to kind of go in detail about this chapter. We're going to look at the first 22 verses. The first 22 verses. And in these 22 verses, Paul is almost as if he's giving a, a yellow light. A yellow light of caution. He's warning these people, these, these Christians living in Corinth, and he gives them three specific warnings, three things that they need to take into consideration. And we're going to look at these three points, and this is basically the basis of what we're going to discuss today. But, but first, let's just look to see what these scriptures have to say in 1 Corinthians, picking up in chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware... That's ignorant in some versions. That all our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. For their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And do not become idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents." Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the cup of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. 
Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? And with this, these 22 verses, there's three points that really Paul's kind of driving home. Number one, don't take blessings for granted. Don't take blessings for granted. The first five verses of this chapter, Paul starts to bridge the gap between those living in Corinth, those Christians living in that situation, and Israel of past. In fact, he gives five similarities, five similar blessings that the Corinthians share, that all Christians share with that of ancient Israel. Number one, Israel was led by the cloud in the wilderness, which symbolized God's supernatural guidance. And as we Christians living in this world, we are led by God's Holy Spirit. We have a spiritual cloud that leads and guides us. We have been given the guidance of Jesus Christ. And not only that, but we have been given the actual physical example. We have four Gospels. We get to see how He lived. We get to see how He taught. And the Scriptures tell us to follow after His example. Another similarity. They experienced supernatural deliverance. The Red Sea, Egypt's plagues, God supernaturally intervening in the history of men to change and alter history. To deliver these chosen people that God had chosen through their forefather Abraham. To bring them out of the land of slavery and into the land of promise. Now we as Christians, we can see the similarity. We have supernaturally and spiritually been delivered from our own Egypt, our own bondage, our bondage from sin. We have been removed from the position of slavery, just like ancient Israel, to a position of heirs of the kingdom of God, just as they were to be put in a position to be heirs of the promised land. Another similarity, they had a physical leader that supernaturally, supernaturally associated with God. Obviously, as the Scripture says, they were all baptized into Moses. Moses was their leader. God supernaturally, as the Scripture tells us, spoke with Moses as a man speaks with a friend. They had a supernatural situation where they had someone going before them on behalf of them, literally speaking with God. And we... In the same way, we have a new Moses, a better Moses, as Deuteronomy, the 18th chapter, tells us. There's a prophecy about God raising up a prophet, a prophet that would be greater than Moses. And we know that the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 is Jesus Christ, our ultimate prophet, our ultimate spiritual leader, who's not just a prophet, many, many more things, but ultimately we see this scripture fulfilled and our leader, Jesus Christ. Another similarity, they were provided supernatural food, of course, manna, and also supernatural drink, water from the rock. Supernatural meaning that God supernaturally provided these things for them. We as Christians, as Jesus spoke and directly and explicitly told us, He came to bring the bread from heaven, the greater bread, a bread that's better than the manna given to ancient Israel. He also spoke about giving us living waters. We that align ourselves with Jesus Christ shall be given the living waters and the bread that comes down from heaven. 
And it's interesting right here that there's a mention of baptism. Obviously, Christianity, baptism is such a central component of our faith. Why? Because it is the outward expression of us aligning ourselves with Jesus Christ, us repenting of our sins and becoming under the authority and lordship of Christ. It is the symbol of our covenant relationship that we have entered into. And we renew that year after year after year through the Passover. But it's interesting that Paul's drawing the analogy of baptism for, for those of the fathers, those ancient Israelites. And baptism being anything that's an outward expression of, of someone or a group of people's identification with the object of he or she's faith. And we can see that Israel, Israel as they passed through the Red Sea, as they were led by God in the Old Testament, by the cloud by day and the fire by night. We see that was their baptism. Them identifying themselves with God. Identifying themselves and aligning themselves with the authority of God. And we know the story. They weren't perfect at this. Many things transpired after this. But we see that we have many similarities. The last similarity that Paul's kind of showing and bringing out, which is almost to some extent a surprising one, was that they had a spiritual rock. And that spiritual rock that led them is the same spiritual rock that leads us. Jesus Christ. Christ was the source of every one of their needs. When we read about the God that led Israel, we are reading about Christ in His pre-incarnate state. There is no way around this. Christ was there with them, sustaining them and providing for their every need, just as He does for our every need. It's interesting that even though all of these blessings, and despite these blessings, the Israelites did not please God. And this was because of their disobedience. Despite the blessings that they had received from God, it did not save them from God's chastening. This disobedience, despite these blessings, brought grave consequences. And the consequence was is that out of all those people that came out of ancient Egypt, all those Israelites, not a single one of them entered into the promised land except for two, Joshua and Caleb. Not even Moses entered into the promised land. Of course, this was for different reasons, for his own personal reasons, but not even Moses. And what Paul is basically saying is this. Look at these people. Look at Moses. Look at Aaron. Look at all that had God's blessing. We cannot be overconfident in the things that God has done for us. Because we still are at risk for the chastening of God if we do not take heed. We cannot just go through life overconfident that God will never discipline us. Look at all the people of the past that had so many blessings just like we did. A chosen people just like we are today. We can't rely just because God has blessed us that we can do whatever we want and the chastening and the discipline of God will not come. And that is what Paul is saying. Not to take for granted those blessings that God has bestowed upon all of us. Another point, another warning 
And Paul's going to go into this. Paul's going to go into why, despite these blessings, what it was that made God unhappy with ancient Israel, specifically. The second point is that we have to learn from others, learn from history, learn from the examples that have been set before us. As as 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture. And of course, we know that was talking about the Old Testament. All those Old Testament examples have been written down. They're actually a, a, a guide to how to stay away from the pitfalls of the people who've went before us. They're a guide to God's righteousness, a guide to seeing all the wrong decisions made in history and in the past, and, and a reminder that just because God blesses us, just because we're His people, does not make us immune to His disciplining. But it's a reminder that we cannot become self-confident and that we have to learn from others and not to make pleasure our God. And that's what we're going to get into with Israel and what they did and what the Corinthian church was on the verge of committing themselves. In the next few verses here, in chapter 10, verse 6 through 13, Paul is going to identify the sins that resulted in the first generation of Israel being disqualified for the promised land. Paul lists four areas of warning for the Corinthian church. Four areas that were evil characteristics, evil things that Israel had committed and that the Corinthians were in danger of repeating. The first one, and before we go into that, there just needs to be a little bit of a, a textual note here. An interesting, uh, uh, I guess you would say, word that Paul uses to try to convey this information. Verse 6 says, <clears throat> verse six says Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. And this word examples is the Greek word typos, which we get the English word type. We hear the word typology. This, these things are a type. They are a pattern. They are a pattern of things that will repeat itself as time goes on and as God will use as examples to teach us lessons. Israel's failings was a type or a pattern, the things that they did that we can look at and actually apply in our own lives to try to refrain or try to, uh, try to stay away from the pitfalls that they fell into. So we look at these four areas of warning. These, these areas that obviously Paul was concerned with with the Corinthian church because of the place that they were, they were living in, this Corinth city that was so rank in, in paganism and, and pagan festivals and festivals that, were, that, that had sacrifices offered to idols, which Paul goes into, that these idols are nothing, they're not real gods, they're just, they're just idols made with hands of men. But nevertheless, there's a danger in them. And some of the Corinthians seem to be overconfident in their knowledge. Well, we know that these are nothing, so why is it a big deal if we kind of associate ourselves with it? We know when we enter into to some of these places and we eat meat and, 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 and we know the meat maybe had been you know, offered to idols or been prayed over by in, in the names of idols or in the names of pagan gods. So if we know that they're nothing, then, then why is that something that we should be a warning to. And we're going to see what Paul gets into. The first thing that Paul brings out, of course, is basically 
the, the basis of this message is idolatry. Verse 7 says that the idolatry of Israel, and we know that Paul right here in his reference that the people stood up to play and eat and drink, he's referencing the, the event of the golden calf in Exodus the 32nd chapter. And we know this story. We know that ancient Israel, Moses goes up to the mountain. He's gone for a number of days. The people get bored. The people get, you know, they're not content anymore. They look to Aaron and says, make us a god. We don't know what happened to Moses. He's, he might be dead, for all we know. Make us a god. And Aaron, because of the pressure, succumbed to the pressure. Everyone gave in different pieces of metal, different gold. And what, what happens is, is they created a god created and fashioned a God after their own likeness, what they wanted God to be, what they thought God should be. And we know the story, the story of idolatry, the intent. The intent of their heart was that they wanted to fashion God the way they wanted and thought God should be. Now, obviously today, we do not do this in the same way in which ancient civilizations did. Most of us probably don't have temptations of going home and, and, and buying or, or, or making some sort of wooden image so we can bow down to. Most of us don't have a temptation to, you know, maybe fly over to different places in the world and, and to enter into their, to their temples and, and bow down to different idols and different statues. But does idolatry still exist? That's the question we have to ask. Of course it does. Anything that takes away our devotion to God and our focus on God can be idolatry. Entertainment. Entertainment. Look at the entertainment industry in America. Look at the country we live in. Look at the millions and billions of dollars that's spent on entertainment and how much people get wrapped up into the things that, that, that the world has to offer. This isn't to say that entertainment's bad. This isn't to say that a healthy uh, amount of, of, of entertainment isn't good, because it can be, and it can be, very, it can be honoring to God, and we can still glorify God. But the difference is, is our focus. The difference is, is how much we emphasize those things in life. Hobbies, another one. This can be golf. This can be fishing. This can be anything that you can imagine. Anything that consumes you. Consumes you to the point that you've created a god out of it. You've created an idol. Sports. Obviously, this goes without saying. I've once heard it said that someone from one of the... I, 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 I cannot remember if it was in a sermon... Uh, or if this particular person was from Africa or from Indonesia or one of those places that there was so much obvious physical idolatry with, with actual pagan temples. But the person came over to America and they thought they had never seen anywhere in their life, any country they had been to, more idolatry than America. And one of the things that they were talking about was the sports that we have. Obviously, this is not just something that is limited to America. We have sports all over the world. But look at the billions of dollars that are spent on stadiums, on sporting facilities. The billions and trillions of dollars that are spent in making and playing these sports. And I, for one, am someone that enjoys sports. I love watching sports. It's, it's something I grew up playing myself. But I have to step back and realize and see 
how much of an idol, how much idolatry we can make over it. I mean, literally trillions of dollars. And we can just see how much we pay these professional athletes to do what they do. Millions and millions of dollars. Which obviously is an indication on how much we emphasize that sport or that activity. And it can be a good thing, again. It can be something that we can still glorify God in. But then again, it can also become an idol. Very easy. Money. Very easy idol. Material things. Literally anything we give too much emphasis to in our lives, it becomes the object, the object of our focus. The object of our lives can be an idol. The next point that Paul brings out, the next sin, the second one is sexual idolatry. And many of these feasts, many of this, these pagan festivals that took place in the ancient days, especially in near, uh, the ancient Near East, involved sexual immorality, involved fornication. We know that Israel, in Numbers, the 25th chapter, it talks about how Israel had gotten mixed up with those of the, Moab, of the Moabites. That they got mixed up messing around in sexual fornication activities with the Moabites through pagan worship. And we know that God was very well pleased. They were literally participating in pagan festivals that called, as a part of the ingredient for the festival, sexual, sexual immorality. And there's no doubt that this was taking place in the Corinthian church, or at least in the city of Corinth. There's no doubt that a lot of the same paganism was going on in Corinth. A lot of the same things. And we know that this is one of the areas in which the Corinthians were at risk of committing. Number three, testing God. Israel tempted God's patience over and over and over again. To the point where Moses had to intervene, as we've seen. Moses intervened on behalf of Israel for God not to destroy them and start over with Moses. Over and over and over, we see them tempting God. Tempting God to the point of telling, telling Moses, why did you even bring us here in the wilderness? We would rather just go back to Egypt, be slaves, instead of starve to death. Assuming God, after all that He had did, all the miracles, the Red Sea, the plagues, that God wouldn't provide for their every need in the wilderness. We see them complaining even later with the manna. We see that God actually provided them fish or provided them quail. We see the complaints of Israel. And the Corinthians were kind of doing the same thing. There are many things they were complaining about, but one of the things was they were complaining about the leaders that God had provided them. Some of them were complaining about Paul. We really don't like Paul. We really don't like the harsh things he has to say to us. We like our feast that we attend. We like these things. We have friends there. So I like Apollos. I rather prefer him over Paul. Or vice versa. They wanted Apollos, or they wanted Paul, but they didn't want Apollos. As we see this, evidence of their complaints and their dissatisfaction with what God had provided them. The leadership that God had provided them. Another characteristic, number four, complaining. And this kind of goes with testing God. Israel complained and complained and complained against God on several occasions. In fact, 
We see this again in the Corinthian church with the same thing. Complaining against Paul or against the leaders that God had provided those in Corinth. And right here, Paul gives a word of warning, especially to those who felt strong in the faith and were overconfident in being able to participate in things among pagans without falling into their influence. In essence, self-confidence was one of the issues that was going on here. Of course, we know self-confidence can in itself be idolatry, idolatry of the self. He concludes this on a positive note, this section. He mentions two things. Number one, he promises or he rehashes the promise of God that God would never bring about a temptation so strong that we would not be able to resist against it. God's never going to tempt us with anything that He has not given us provisions for to be able to resist against that temptation. And He mentions providing a way of escape. But here's the key, and a key to remember. We can't put ourselves in situations where we're going to run the risk of falling into temptation and then claim, well, God didn't help us. If we're an alcoholic, we can't go to a bar and say, well, this temptation's just too tough to resist. I have to drink. We have to do our part also. We have to instead of participate or put ourselves in line to commit idolatry or to commit sin, instead we have to flee from it, as Paul says. And we're going to read this. And this brings us to our third point. Our third thing, our third warning that Paul brings out, which is don't take part in false worship and practices, but rather flee from them. Verses 14 through 22. Paul now urges the Corinthians to instead of putting themselves on the verge of committing idolatry, instead of participating in things that are obviously contrary to God, instead flee from those things and cling to the things of God. You know, when Jesus was first resurrected, one of the last things that He says in the Gospel of Matthew, He says that He would be with us even to the end of the age. And we know that through the Holy Spirit, Christ lives in us. He has made His abode with us. That through that Spirit, we have a power that is actually something that was not given to the people who we're talking about today, the fathers. We do have an advantage. We have the ability to be led by God through His Holy Spirit. Let's just read these last few verses again, verses 14 through 22. Verse 14 through 22 of 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of sacrifices partakers of the, of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, 
that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And here Paul is trying to draw an analogy by using the holy symbols of the New Testament Passover. And we can think about that. The bread and the wine, which symbolize Christ's body and blood and our union with Christ and our covenant that we have entered into. Now, if we think about it, let's look at the analogy that, 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 that Paul is trying to make. He says, all of us that partake of this, the, you know, the, the, the blood and the wine, we are actually aligning ourselves with Christ. We are actually showing our solidarity with God. And just as those in the Old Testament who partook of the altar, they were showing their solidarity with God on the terms of the Old Covenant. So we need to remember, when we partake of certain things, we are actually breaching that solidarity with God. Because we are in union with God, which would prohibit us from being in union with anything else. In other words, we cannot be in union with God and at the same time trying to associate ourselves with things that are obviously associated with demonism or Satan or a false worship. And this is what Israel did. They partook of the things of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. They aligned themselves with God. They verbally proclaimed the Lord. They verbally proclaimed and accepted the terms and stipulations of the Old Covenant, but yet they tried to at the same time associate with things like pagan practices. They tried at the same time align themselves, and as the Scripture says, go whoring after other gods. Something that you, we cannot do. Something that is impossible. And the Christians at Corinth were seemingly doing the same thing. And it almost seems, as Paul brings out, he, he even says, am I saying that the idol is anything? Am I saying that, that there's actually something behind this? No, that's not what I'm saying. But essentially what I'm saying is this. Even though these idols are nothing, even though that they're not real, they're not really God, demonic forces are at the center of influencing these pagan belief systems. We have to remember that. We have to remember what we and what is out there in the world. And some of the Corinthians probably were thinking, well, hey, look, I know this is not a God. I know this is, idol is nothing. So what's wrong with me still associating with some of this? Because even though it's nothing, behind it, behind the influence, are demonic forces. And you have been aligned with Christ. You are in union and, and, and covenant with God. And those who are in covenant with God cannot have anything to do with things that are influenced from Satan or from demons. Those are the things we have to remember. So, in conclusion, there are several points to this. Several points. Number one, we can't underestimate the power and influence of Satan. We cannot underestimate the power and influence of Satan. Number two, we have to remember that sometimes... Who and what we associate with can lead to idolatry, immorality, and we can't put ourselves at risk. 
Now, obviously, as I mentioned earlier, our temptation is probably not to attend Corinthian pagan festivities. Our temptation is not to go out and buy a, an altar and, and bow down to it. But what about movies? What about TV? What about people or friends, specific people or friends? What about social events? As a world, we can look at it. What about religious holidays? What about religious holidays where people say, well, it's okay. You know, we don't do it in the same way. We know that that's not really real, really behind it. But we think about it. If there's demonic forces or demonic influence in that, then obviously it's something we cannot be a part of. And we understand that living here and in this tradition that we are in. An interesting quote from John MacArthur says, Idolatry is having any false god, any object, any idea, philosophy, habit, occupation, sport, or whatever that has one's primary concern and loyalty or that to any degree decreases one's trust in and loyalty to the Lord. Which is a pretty good definition of idolatry for the 21st century. Because we're not looking at the physical things only. We're looking at the spiritual things, the things that... that we emphasize so much in our lives. And as a former teacher that I had, speaking on this verse, said, A Christian must not participate in the practices of false worship, like palm reading, Ouija boards, anything which gets its power from demonic forces. I mean, obviously, some of the things that we might watch, we might enjoy, that obviously have almost what I would call a cultic following. And he mentions things like, those of you who grew up with the He-Man cannot call on the power of the gray skull. Star Wars fans are not to rely on the force. Harry Potter fans should not dabble in witchcraft and wizardry. Now these are things we understand and are basic and none of us are probably doing this. But it goes without saying that there's things we can identify in our life and in the world that we have to remember not to associate with and not to emphasize to the point that it's taking away we're going to focus on God. We have to remember our union that we have made with God, which excludes all other unions, all other competing unions that is trying to gain our primary focus in our life. We have to remember not to be self-confident in ourselves. We have to remember about our fathers in the past, the stumbling blocks, the things that they fell into, the traps. And remember, even though some of them had some of the same blessings we did, nevertheless, they were still able to bring about God's discipline and chastening. These are three warnings that Paul gives us. And I just pray that all of us try to look in our lives and identify areas, this practical information that the Apostle Paul is trying to bring to us. As we identify things in our lives and as we strive to instead of participate or run the risk of participating in idolatry, we want to flee from it. Instead, cling to God, the God who is with us to the end of the age.